Welcome to Force Points to the Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Erica Pierce to explore the latest in government cybersecurity news and trending topics. Always covered in 15 minutes or less. Now, let's get to the point. Hi, and welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity. I am one of your hosts, Erica Pierce, and joined by Eric Trexler, as always. Hi, Eric. Good morning, Erica. Good morning. And we have back with us um, a guest that was with us a couple of weeks ago, Richard Stinnon. How are you doing, Richard? I'm doing great. Good, good. So, Richard, you were on a couple of weeks ago, um, you're an industry analyst and a, uh, an author, a writer, um, an overall expert. And so one of the things that we wanted to jump into um, this week is talking about um, essentially, you know, what's next in terms of security. And, and one of the examples I know we've talked about in some of our, our prep time was um, Cyber Pearl Harbor. We had Katie Arrington on the um, podcast a couple of weeks ago as well, and we just talked about how you know the next threat. It, it, it's really going to be a, a cyber threat in terms of what's on the horizon, and there's a lot going on right now in the world. So, I wanted to take a step back and, and get some of your thoughts in terms of um, in terms of just the the environment that we're in now, and and what you think we can do to better protect ourselves from from nation states and, and others. Sure. Well, I think Cyber Pearl Harbor typically refers to a disabling attack on critical infrastructure. I I don't know that Pearl Harbor was a a critical infrastructure attack. I mean, obviously some was hit. It wasn't. But I don't know that I love the term. I understand what people are trying to convey, though, Richard. Yeah. And uh, who is it? Uh, the Secretary of Defense of the U.S. started using that term, even though the term goes back to Richard Clark and uh, French Caldwell. friend at uh, Gartner uh, talked about it a lot in 2000 and but it became this cyber Pearl Harbor became a uh, just a encompassing term for you know taking out the lights and the emergency uh, response networks and shutting down a country right and I had to take an academic approach because I had written a book on cyber war called surviving cyber war back in 2010. It was actually my first book. And I'm an amateur military historian, right? So I like reading classics of military history. And so I used a lot of allusions to military things. And I realized as I was writing it, especially since my publisher was selling it as a textbook, that it wouldn't be well received by the academic world because they didn't know anything about, you know, the history and, and historiography, they call it. Um, so I went back to school. I got a master's in War in the Modern World. And my master's thesis turned into my book called There Will Be Cyber War. And there will be. And there already has been. That's the predominant response I get whenever I see whenever people see the title of my book. I had to call it that because one of the professors at King's College, where I was going to school, had written a book called There Is No Cyber War. And you know, it it was just an academic looking at it using Clausewitzian definitions of warfare and the use of force would say all that stuff that went on in Estonia and the country of Georgia, that wasn't cyber war. That was something else because it didn't involve use of force and killing people. And, you know, in a modern era, 
very few people other than academics understand that argument. So anyways, I had title at that. And I went through, it's basically a history of all the state-sponsored attacks. Um, and I had to have definitions that would would set this in place. And that's why I had to define what a cyber Pearl Harbor is. The To me, cyber war is the use of you know, computer network exploitation or computer network attack, CNE and CNA, uh, by military forces. That's cyber war. You know, if, if if we catch the Pentagon, you know, shutting down command and control in Iran, that's cyber war, no question. Whether combined with kinetic attacks or Whether independent or right. alone. Right. So to me- I mean, at least it's cyber attacks. Right. It's cyber attacks done by militaries. That's warlike stuff. And they're just- Yep. They're achieving their aims without having to fire missiles or put boots on the ground. So the to me, the the cyber war would be defined by by that. I think I predict that there will be a cyber battle. When it happens, it's gonna be very disruptive to how militaries are structured. A cyber battle will be some sort of incursion between networked and capable countries, of which what there are only five, right? US, Israel, Russia. China, uh, North Korea, maybe, and Iran. So that's six. Um, but they'll they'll be engaged in some sort of conflict. It won't be a war. It'll be a conflict. It could be in the the Taiwan Straits. Could be in the South China Sea. Could be in Ukraine, um, which you can argue has already happened. Uh, where one military you know gains an advantage and wins a battle because they took out the other's ability to communicate or guide missiles or get the intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance that they need. Um, to me, that would be most similar to a Pearl Harbor, right, which was a surprise attack on the Navy in Pearl Harbor at the outset of our World War II, as opposed to the, you know, the, this concept that somebody's going to shut off the lights in the United States which would be a great terrorist act. No question that terrorists, you know, would have a greater impact and cause more damage and probably more loss of life than they would by commandeering airplanes and flying them into uh, office towers. And yet they never have, right? It's, I had to teach a, a course on cyber terrorism and you really have to scrape the bottom of the barrel to find things that could be classified as cyber terrorism, right? And it, the Tamil Tigers doing a DDoS on an embassy in Sri Lanka is about the best example anybody can come up with, and that was from the 90s. So terrorists haven't figured out, other than for influence operations, they haven't figured out cyber terrorism. Not well, yet, but it is easy. It's cost effective right. it's, with globalization and the internet. Yep. It's easy. I mean, right, we have to send planes to wherever we need to go or ships. Yep. The keystrokes travel pretty quickly and pretty far. Yeah. Well, and how ready are we, in your opinion? Uh, not ready at all. Just No, we have the most to lose, Eric, out of anybody right. out there. Right. We're most, the most industrialized, most connected economy in the world. Yeah. We totally depend on our infrastructure, and without it, we would we would be in deep, deep trouble. Now, mind you, I'm a firm believer that the people of the United States really pull together during a crisis, and I don't predict you know complete disaster. Even if they burn up all the transformers, as some people predict, you know, and some of those take a year to build in India to replace them, we'll still get by. And just like 
you know, how did we react to the earthquakes and fires in San Francisco? San Francisco is doing fine. Years. But I think it's a scale issue also. If you look at like the NotPetya attacks of, of I think, 2017, you know, one, it was nation state, act, confirmed nation state activity. Two, lost control, right? It was targeted at Ukraine, but Maersk was hit. FedEx was hit. I mean, there were companies that were hit. $10 billion in damage. But Erica, do you remember? I mean, do you right. remember being impacted at all? I mean, Maersk is the largest shipping company in the world. FedEx is clearly, I think, the largest shipper in the mm-hmm. United States. Maybe the Postal Service hasn't beat by volume. But do you remember your Amazon boxes not getting to you on time? No. <laughs> I don't either. We accommodate. But at scale, imagine if shipping was shut down. Everything shut down, right. For weeks. Or food, distribution, fuel. I was at a fuel pump this weekend, and I, for whatever reason, I was thinking about. I was like, I wouldn't know where to get fuel if electricity wasn't running. Yeah, you uh, like, you just can't do that during, anymore. During the ice storms, we got ready for. Um, I went out and filled my truck up so I'd have gas in the truck. Bought a generator and bought a five-gallon gas tank of, of gasoline. That last that'll last me twenty hours. That's all I got before I have to go stealing gasoline from the truck cars on the street. <laughs> So what does the government do, Richard? I mean, you say this is going to happen at some point. What what do they do to help protect us? Who does it? Like, where, where's the emphasis here? Yeah, so there's regulatory bodies, NERC and FERC. You know, one's an industry body. The other is the federal um, regulator. Yep. They're making progress. But when they first came out and said, you know what, you have to have cyber controls, um, they asked all of the utilities – in the U.S., about 3,000 of them, to report all their critical facilities, you know, ones that could be damaged by a cyber attack. Their first response to this regulatory requirement was to say none of them were critical. Not a oh, single. really? Power generating station, <laughs> switching, transformer station, none of them. Not that they weren't, not that they were protected adequately, no. but that they weren't critical. They weren't critical, therefore did not require the protections that the regulators were thinking about. That's fascinating. Yeah. Those protections being, you know, network security, endpoint securities, regular security audits, all the things that we do in our IT infrastructure already, because we learned our lesson thanks to attacks that started in, you know, 1995. Um, the power grid hadn't seen those. So they're just uh, pulling, you know, a sack over their head and saying, well, see, see no evil, hear no evil. Um, so, but that's changed over the last six years. They've now reported out of 10,000 facilities, I think they're up to about 2,000 are identified as critical. So in other words, they might start protecting those 2,000 facilities. Uh, but there's 8,000 facilities that they didn't include, and we all know they're all connected. All you got to do is shut off one of the outliers, and it'll have cascading effects, as we learned in 2003 when the entire North the blackouts blacked mm-hmm. out. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fragile system. Uh, we also know, thanks to Andy Greenberg's book, that uh, Sandworm, that they've already infiltrated the power grid networks here in the United States, the Russians in particular. Um, they're poking around, they're gathering intelligence, but they're using the same tools that they use to shut off power in Ukraine. So, like, for anybody in the security industry, this is just obvious. When it happens, we'll all get to say, I told you so, which doesn't help save lives. 
So the kinetic world or physical world equivalent would be they already have mines attached to the battleship's hulls. Right. That's perfect. Fair? Yep. Fair enough. And probably the carriers too, which the Japanese missed during Pearl Harbor, but that could be a bigger problem in a cyber war. Right. Okay. Yep. You got it. And that's, what do we do? You know, it's, we, we need utilities and critical infrastructure, frankly, to do their job, right? It's, they are responsible for providing power and communications. They got some liability, but not very much because, you know, the governments have granted, um, you know, a, a franchise to them to provide power. There's no competition, right? It's a monopoly in each region. And so their prices are completely uh, agreed upon with the uh, local commissions. And they just say, you know what? You're asking us to do all this security stuff. That's expensive. Therefore, let us raise the rates. And of course, government can't do that because those are elected officials and, and that would be hard. So they just sit on their hands and do nothing. It's a, who's going to blink first? Well, what's going to happen is they are going to lose power. They're going to be like PG&E in California, though those aren't necessarily cyber, though Andy Greenberg's book makes you're you You're referencing the fires where they're shutting down the grid. It's mm -hmm. either going down or they're shutting it down to prevent additional fires. And then yep. you know, and the people of the state are suffering greatly. Don't forget the huge gas explosion in the Bay Area. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Right, also right. And, and they're going to go bankrupt and they'll start over because we still need them in some form. But nobody actually went to jail or suffered a change in their livelihood. Um, and that's kind of what they're hoping. So my solution is remove the uh, liability clauses to say that if there's loss of life, right now if, if a hospital loses power and a bunch of people die or suffer in some way, the utility isn't responsible. You can't sue them, right? Because mm -hmm. it's part of the deal. But if you go back and say, you know what, if it can be proved that it was a cyber attack, now you are liable. As soon as you do that, the people who underwrite utilities with bond issues uh, will you know, reduce the amount or whatever. They won't be able to get funding for the things they do until they can demonstrate that they're secure in a cyber way. And of course, what will they do? They'll immediately invest hundreds of millions of dollars in the technology they need to prove that it wasn't a cyber issue. There's always a squirrel. <laughs> right, not, not actually address the issue. Right, they won't address the issue. Yeah. And that leads to maybe a government agency should be doing that cyber monitoring for them. So who, who should be responsible? CISA, NERC, FERC? All of the above. All of the above, yeah. You can't have all of the above. <laughs> I don't think it works. Yeah, if I mean that's why we have cyber coordinators, right? There sh should be some coordination, uh, somebody identified as responsible, and give them the leadership and funding that they need to make it happen. Okay, in the last couple minutes we have here, I want to switch gears slightly on this one. We had Katie Arrington a couple weeks ago. She talked about CMMC, the the cyber maturity model uh, certification, where third party auditors are going to are going to look at DIB, defense industrial-based uh, suppliers, and accredit them essentially for different levels of security. Uh, first time I've heard anybody talk about actually really helping move the, the needle in a major way on in the cybersecurity world. 
could we not just do something similar for the energy, the power companies? Um, I wonder because power companies don't have the staff to understand what's needed or to even formulate it. But nor do DIB suppliers, but the DOD is saying, Katie's saying, hey, if you want to do business with us, pony up. Yep. Now, we'll provide some funding for this capability. So if the government provided funding, which allowed them to hire, and I know we've got a cybersecurity talent shortage also, we've got to address. But if we had third-party auditors accrediting them so they could get risk insurance or we could deal with risk at least, at least say, hey, I was level three. I did everything I thought I needed to do. If the government is providing some funding to enable them to do this, is that potentially an answer? If it's prescriptive enough. So look at PCI, right? Which is the only uh, thing yep. I can think of that's similar where the payment card industry said, you know what, do these 10 things and or else you can't be a merchant. Uh, and then and people started to do them. That didn't stop Target or you know any of the major breaches. All those were PCI compliant companies. Uh, but it set a low bar anyways, which is much better than what we have today in public utilities. Well, and Katie argued for the ISO compliance requirements around manufacturing and how, uh, you know, we, we have less workforce <laughs> issues because people are, you know, they're wearing safety goggles or there's safety controls in place, at least. It's something. It's getting us, it's moving that needle in mass. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. didn't like ISO, the, the ISO compliance requirements. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe for safety and shop floor stuff and quality, for sure. ISO 9000 did something for quality. But ISO 27000 for security would not get us very far. It doesn't move the needle at all, right? It's, it's all, you know, just document stuff, and then you're good. Okay. Okay. So I, I think she was talking more about using that as, you know, taking the NIST requirements and, and enforcing them, third-party auditors, and making the environment a safer, more secure place. Oh, we're going to need another show for me to... <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Okay, Erica, back to you. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you, Richard. I, I think you've given us a lot to think about. <laughs> I was trying to find some optimism at the end of the rainbow, so maybe we, <laughs> when the next time you join us, we'll, we can start it off on a little bit of a higher note. <laughs> we'll try. Because <laughs> yeah. believe it right. or not, I am an optimist, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, it That's sounds like it's going to get um, more challenging before we we it gets a little bit better. But uh, I know there's I think we all agree on that, Erica. Out there trying to figure it out. So thank you again, Richard, for joining us again on the podcast. Thank you to all our listeners for tuning in each week. Continue to join us every week here on To The Point Cybersecurity. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Google Play Store 